turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Michael Wisniewski, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to speak to architects from the lumber side of the, the building world. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this conversation because I'm interested in what you're doing and how you got to where you are uh, in what you're doing. And so it, it, it'll be an interesting conversation. I think our audience of architects will also find sort of the, the background about what you do uh, very interesting. Hopefully we'll educate them as well on what you do. Um, for 27 years, Mike's been actively trading commodities. Lumber is his specialty where he is active in both the futures market and the physically traded material. In 19, uh, 2019, he founded Materials Exchange, a B2B uh, digital marketplace for buying and selling lumber and structural wood panel. So Michael, this is, uh, this is going to be fun, I think. Um, it, you, you, if I went to my mother and said, you know what, I'm gonna have a conversation about lumber and it's gonna be fun. I think I think she'd think I was crazy, but I really do think this is going to be interesting. So um, let's talk lumber and lumber pricing and all the things that go around lumber and wood panels. Um, but before we do that, I, I want to know more about you specifically. You know, when did you discover your passion for what you do and who or what inspired you to get started on this path? So I come from a construction family. My father was a superintendent for a mid-sized construction company located, ironically, right on the Wisconsin-Illinois border, such that the border actually went through their yard. And he worked in you know both Wisconsin and in like Chicagoland. But uh, I was exposed to the, the feeling of building something and the satisfaction 
of when it's all finished, you look and you're like, I built that. Uh, you know, I remember riding around with my dad and he'd be like, yeah, we built that. I built this. And um, then when I graduated high school, I was able to go work as a union laborer with, uh, with him. And here's what's crazy. My son just got a job at Chick-fil-A and he's making more per hour than I did as a union <laughs> laborer in, uh, let's see, 1988. Yeah, Chick-fil-A pays well. They, they do. <laughs> so then uh, I got into construction and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was in college at the time. I changed my major from engineering to construction management. And then after college, uh, what I figured out was construction wasn't as fun as I had thought it was would be because people argued all the time. And right. there was it was a weird time. My dad was becoming disgruntled with the industry as well. Um, Gone were the days where he said they'd all get together and build a building and work as a team, different companies. Um, I think that the, the landscape had just become so competitive. So I decided not to go into construction. Um, but a friend of mine who was in the lumber industry, actually college roommate um, out in Oregon, was making really good money um, right out of college. So I asked him who, do, who did what he does in Chicago. And I walked in the front door of this lumber wholesale company and they hired me. And I was fortunate enough, um, had two great mentors there who looked at the lumber industry uh, with a very analytical trader mindset. Um, and I just want to take a quick little tangent. Yeah. You know, lumber is square, but it doesn't start out square, right? <laughs> it starts true. out round. Yeah. And this big round hunk of fiber or, you know, the log can be made into many different things. And what it gets made into is a direct component or a direct result of how the market's acting, meaning what is, what are the, what's the pricing? You know, it, the best example is a two by four versus a two by eight. If a two by four 16 footer is getting a better price than a two by eight 16 footer, guess what they do at the sawmill? They cut it in half. Yeah. I mean, it's simple um, math really when it comes down to it, but uh, it's a lot bigger than that when you're starting to talk about different species and uh, when looking at the whole market. So uh, it really, it, it fed into the way my mind works, which is uh, mathematical and analytical. Um, but at the time it was also very social because of the way data was transferred around is word of mouth through relationships. So uh, I'm a pretty gregarious person with a mathematical mind. So it was a lot of fun uh, right out of the gates. What was, what was your role at that first position? It uh, lumber salesman or you know, lumber trader, I should say, which yeah. you're buying so who, and selling. So who was your customer at that point? Um, the customers were typically uh, lumber yards. Okay. The, uh, this was in the mid nineties. Um, the supply chain was still very traditional. It uh, you know sawmill into wholesale distribution to lumber dealers, and then out to job sites. So the, there was a big no no. You you wouldn't sell the people who your customers sold to. Of course, everyone had their spot in the supply chain. They had to stay. Um, but things started to change, uh, and I ended up leaving the industry kind of because of that. The wholesale distribution kind of got a bad name. Um, because we did this terrible thing, like put margin on the product. <laughs> you and made a profit. Make, and try to make Damn a profit. you. 
<laughs> right. Um, and the, the sawmills were going more direct to the bigger lumber dealers. And Home Depot and Lowe's got in the, into the Home action. De- yeah. They, yeah. So everything was just kind of topsy-turvy and um, I still love trading. So I left the industry, uh, took a massive pay cut, <laughs> like made a third of what I was making to go into financial trading. Um, and I was fortunate to go work for uh, a guy here in Chicago who's now a multi-billionaire. And I learned financial trading. I learned a lot about futures and options and um, analyzing markets um, and, and more importantly, how to apply technology. So the gentleman who I went to work for at that point, he was um, used his Apple 2C computer. Remember that guy? Yeah, for sure. Uh, to enter in the um, options, Black and Scholes options trading uh, formula and printed out option sheets, uh, like pricing sheets. And he would went into the p- trading pits and he would take on big banks and he was just better than them. He had better information. So he, so had, he was leveraging technology to get information quicker to be able to leverage that in, in purchases and buy. 100%. So then he said, okay, I'm just going to hire a bunch of really smart people, put this technology in their hands, and send them into the pits. And that's what he did. Um, and he built this huge firm. It's called uh, DRW. And, you know, I, that's where I learned about digital trading. And um, it was a lot of fun and a lot of opportunity. When sure. was that? What, what year was that? 1999. Okay. So very um, early. Very early on. I ended up uh, leaving the firm because they wanted to send me to the trading floor which I didn't want to do. I wanted to sit at the desk because there was more opportunity there. Uh, went and worked for another firm that was all trading off the floor. When I say the floor, the, that's the trading floors that were in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so, so you we wanted were trading- to be at the desk at the, at the exchange, not on the floor. No, we were desk. actually- So you wanted to be in an office. I wanted to be in an office totally away from this. Um, yeah. So we started trading electronically um, on the European exchanges. And it, this is crazy in today's world, but we had a one second delay from the time you clicked your mouse to get the information back because it had to travel from Chicago all the way to Frankfurt back. Yeah. Um, but it was no big deal. That's just what was, you know, sign of the times. Right. Um, and that was high technology. You could get it back in one second. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, if you don't get it back in under five milliseconds, then it's you're behind it. Right. You're late. So I learned electronic trading. I really, I wasn't that good at it. So um, to augment my income, I went back and worked for the lumber wholesale company um, in the afternoons, just doing business development and helping them out because I I knew lumber. Um, And then the big change in my life happened in 2009 when the Chicago Mercantile Exchange announced they were going to list the lumber futures contract on their digital platform. So I'm going to sound like a hypocrite now. I went down to the trading floors then. <laughs> but opportunity. You followed the opportunity. I did. But there was a key caveat. I walked into the Lumber Futures Pit with a tablet computer. So I brought all of this technology with me that I had used and learned how to use for the last, the previous 10 years. And I walked into the Lumber Pit and they laughed at me. Yeah. Who's this guy with a laptop? <laughs> they, yeah, they, it was, it was really, it was an surreal experience i was i think early 40s this pit was full of these 50 60 year old men grizzly who had been in the lumber you know trading for 
25, 30 years. And they thought, who is this punk going to come in here? Yeah. Five minutes later, I was up a thousand dollars because they were ignoring the, the digital market. And there was a discrepancy between the two that I was able to take advantage of. So the laughing stopped and then they huddled up and then they were they like, okay, to what, learn we? what you knew. Well, now they were going to just try to figure, they were, they were going to fight me. How could they prevent me from this? And we all know you can right. Ra rather, rather than looking at that as an opportunity to learn and, and learn what you know and get better at it. They go at you and try to shut you down so they can keep doing it the way they've always done it. <laughs> you you must have been there watching. That's exactly what happened. I just I've seen that pattern over and over in my life, so it's, I'm not surprised. Um, which of course didn't work. Um, Eighteen months later, ninety five percent of the volume being traded was on the computer screen, um, and it, it was a direct result of what I was doing. The pit. Now, granted, once the snowball got rolling down the hill, other people joined in, but yep. um, it was because of my actions that. I, that that this happened um so then you know then a little hubris and arrogance set in because i was making really good money and i was faster than everyone else by clicking the mouse and just using my brain the, the lumber um, king i was the lumber king yes um and i thought to myself this little lumber market is too small for the big firms that have algorithms and computer programs to ever come in and i was right for about four or five years. Then all of a sudden, one day I noticed the action in the market was from a computer. And I thought who in their right mind actually programmed something up for lumber and no one, no one in their right mind would have done that. But what they did was take something they were using in a different market and bring it to lumber. the portability plug, plug in. technology. Yep. Right. Um, and I was like, Whoa, <laughs> uh, I didn't have the capital or the technology to compete at the level they were. So I said, you know, what, what can I do that would, that I can use what I do have. And that was take this technology and know-how and bring it into the cash market, bring it into this even more old school market where people are dialing for dollars on the phone and brokering and where information travels so slowly. And it's a very opaque market. Um, so that really defines where, where we're at today which is we want to bring transparency and we want to bring speed of data transfer to the industry because it's just not right that architects don't know what the price of lumber is. I mean, there, there should be a direct link between what an architect wants to build with and what a sawmill wants to cut. And they should, they should be connected very closely. Yeah. That's very interesting. Let's, let's dive into that. And, and, understand that from the architect side, why does it matter to us what lumber costs? Well, I, I was going to jump in earlier. There's something I would, I want to say about lumber, which yeah. it's, it's kind of, um, if lumber was discovered today, you know, if, a somehow out of nowhere, boom, trees popped up and they're like, Oh, check out this building material. It would be considered space age. It's strength to weight, to usability, um, abundance, there's no building material like it. It, it. it humors me when these environmentalists come out and say, oh, we shouldn't be cutting down all these trees. Tree has a life cycle in today's world of, you know, maybe 17 to 25 years that the tree, you know, from planting to usability, which is a long time. But what's the life cycle of iron ore? What's the life cycle of concrete? Like once you pull it out of the ground, you're waiting a few eons <laughs> maybe a few you know 
planets being developed. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it really, it, it's a phenomenal building material. And with some of the new technologies around mass timber that they're creating, um, I just, I couldn't be more excited for the future of wood and wood fiber in building. So that's. Yeah. yeah. When you look at the, the way buildings are being built and you look at wood and how it's being leveraged, um, there's a renaissance in the lumber world in terms of, in terms of using wood for larger structures with mass timber and the other opportunities that, that are coming with technology being applied to wood and how wood is, is being engineered. It's yeah, pretty it, amazing it, what can be built now. I learned something that you know, kind of brought to my attention um, at a mass timber conference, and they're just talking about the weight of the material. Now, I'm in Chicago. We've got these great big tall buildings. And think about how much, as an architect, how much structure you have to put underneath concrete to have it, you know, 70 floors in the air, where if that 70th floor was wood, which would weigh about 10% of what concrete weighs, now the whole structure has to have less strength. Um, so it, it's just a more efficient way to build. But um, I forgot about wood. Well, actually, before we jump into why architects should should care about the price, let's yes, talk yes. about how lumber is priced. Can you go through that process? How How is the price of lumber determined? <laughs> Macroeconomics 101. It's supply versus demand. It's just that simple. If you're a sawmill, and you look out in your yard and there's a lot of wood and then you know how, what the production of your sawmill is and you go, okay, I'm gonna produce you know, 10 trucks today and I've got 20 trucks in my yard. If I don't sell more than 10 trucks today, tomorrow I'm going to have more than 20 trucks in my yard, right? right. So if you're producing more than you're selling, over time, your inventory is gonna grow, you're going to have to do something about it you're going to reduce the supply. Now, the reverse of that is if you look in your yard and there's nothing there and you produce 10 trucks and you could sell 20 that day, what you do is you raise your price until you get to the point where you don't sell 20 trucks, you only sell 10. So it's just that simple. If demand is outpacing supply, prices are going up. When supply outpaces demand, prices go down. Where is that price determined? Is it actually at the yard where the the final purchase is done, or is it up up the the flow somewhere and then it just trickles down to the yard? It happens everywhere. It happens at every step. It happens at every step. It uh, it happens at the builder level where they decide which yard to buy their package from. Their let's say a single family builder. Um, if they go with yard A versus yard B, then yard A has to go into the market and buy more material. And then it happens at the distribution level. And, you know, so it's happening everywhere all the time. Um, and what's really interesting, and this is something people kind of forget about, that it's the virtual, uh, not actual demand, but implied demand or implied supply that drives market. So uh, right now I'm working with a builder who is buying up wood that he's gonna use for the first five months of the year. He's buying it today. He's buying it in you know December 1st for wood that he doesn't need until April. So the demand is coming April 1st, but the apparent demand is happening today. Yeah. Um, so we're, the industry is a lot like lemmings. Market goes up, people chase it. Yeah, it's like every goes, every financial market, right? Like is it every financial market. something shifts and the whole the whole market shifts with it? Yep. And, and people are 
when the mar- when the lumber prices had tripled, people felt so bad if they didn't have a bunch of wood in their yard. Yeah, because prices were going higher, higher. Yeah. Um, when the reality is, was the market goes higher and higher, you want less and less. I wanted to ask you about that. This past year, earlier this year, late last year, the prices were at maximum levels, right? It's the highest pricing in lumber in history. What was the cause of that? Why did the pricing of lumber go so high after the, and, and was it pandemic related? Um, it was a massive shift of demographics uh, from urban environments, which generally use less wood yep. to suburban and more rural environments. Um, it was also a shift of um, assets into real estate. This was more subtle, but you know, if you're a wealthy person and you say, well, I kind of want to have a place to get out of society, you buy a second home. Right. You, 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 know, you end up building another structure. You build uh, a barn in the back of your yard. And the cost to live went down. So people had a lot more money in their hand and they were just doing stuff with it. They were building a new deck. And look, if your wife wants a new deck, she wants a new deck. You could double the price. You're going to still build a new deck. Yeah. So the Um, demand caused by the the situation through society caused by the pandemic, right? The pandemic caused lots of societal shifts. Those societal shifts caused the demand to go way up more than it has ever gone up. And the pricing just followed that. And then, you know, another part of the story is supply went down. Um, We had all of these supply chain issues. Uh, You just, that goes back to apparent demand versus apparent supply. You just couldn't get the product to where you want it. And everybody did the same thing at once. So all of a sudden you have a builder who has order file who went from, you know, normally I have three months of business on the books. I, I have, 12, 15 months. I want to buy this wood. Yeah. Prices now, start going while up. it's going up before it goes up. Right. Prices start going higher. Uh, I want to buy more wood. So yeah, it was a twofold effect. It, it, the, the product wasn't where people wanted it and we're Americans and we want it. We want it now. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by RCAT.com. Can't find the product data that you're looking for? You might be using the wrong search engine. Broad searches result in consumer products, out-of-date information, and websites that hide or don't have the information that you're looking for. If you need specifications, CAD, or BIM, RCAT.com is your search engine. Find and download the up-to-date data that you need fast. RCAT.com is free and requires no registration. So try RCAT today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So let's go back to that earlier question. You're talking to architects now. How does that, how does the price of lumber, obviously, you know, our project's the cost of our projects go up, but why specifically is it important for us to know in real time what the price of lumber is? Okay, perfect example. Uh, This phenomena of lumber pricing was pretty um, localized to the United States. So all of a sudden the US and, you know, Canada 
became the place to sell lumber. Lumber prices were the best. Wood started flowing in from Europe like mad. The problem is the, the specification, the actual design values of that European wood are a little different. Um, many times the wood was not being able to be used uh, for because it wasn't specified properly. Uh, Brazil, Brazilian plywood um, in Florida was banned. Uh, th actually, this one particular grade stamp. Um, so then they stopped using the Brazilian plywood. So the, the point I'm making is it comes down to flexibility and knowledge of what's going on. In so as an architect, I think you owe it to whoever you're designing that building for to design it in the most efficient way that's going to bring about the results you wanted, right? A two by four stud that's going to get covered with drywall and going to get you know painted over. Does it really matter to the final user of that structure? What species that is? No, what matters is that the building doesn't fall down. Right, that it performs at the level that we expect it to. Correct. So if you can design in flexibility, then um, yeah, let the, let the uh, supply chain do what it's supposed to do and bring the most efficient product to the table to be used. Now, it's not all the fault of the architect. Everybody likes to point the finger at the architects. Approach, <laughs> yeah, we're right? used to that. <laughs> um, the, the real problem, as I see it, is communication inside the supply chain. Um, and this is, a, this is a big problem, and it's a difficult problem. When you're designing something that's going to be built 18 months later, maybe 24 months later, right. um, how do you know what is the best species to use? You don't. So that's where if, if there was some level of communication, ease of communication right. that, okay, Hey, it's, we're building this in 18 months. I think we should use these products. I think we should design it this way. Great. 18 months later. Wow. If you only designed it like this, you should have known, right? <laughs> should have known that engineered wood was going to be super expensive. Um, but you didn't. So let's redesign it real quick. You know, as a lumber guy, yeah, do that real quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> push I'm not the an redesign architect. button. Push the yeah, redesign. But, but I understand your point. I mean, uh, many architects, and I would say most, uh, when they specify lumber specifically, uh, because lots of them sort of, for other materials, maybe they'll be a little bit more adventurous. But lumber is usually part of their standard spec. It is, this is what we specify on every project. We've done it for the last 10 years, and that's the spec. Right. And so what you're saying is if you were a little bit more educated, for one, you could actually pick a specification that might be performed the same way, but be less expensive. Um, but then also because you have that knowledge and the, and the ability to understand what you're specifying and have the flexibility to make that change, um, that when it goes out to bid and those prices come back, you can be very quick and, and ready and prepared with the flexibility to make a change to say, okay, well, that's what we thought it was going to be. But actually now if we shift it to this material, it'll be 10% less or 20% less or whatever percent less, um, without a performance change. Right. And, but often architects and contractors will balk at that because the, the, the level of the process, right. The, the, the extent of the process to make that happen, uh, becomes burdensome, right. It's easier to just say, no, just do what I said. Right, just yeah. do what I spec, yep. right, and that's what you're—that's what you're talking about, right? Is that 
that if we were more flexible, if the process was more flexible, not only are the people, but the process was more flexible, and we had access to real-time information, that could happen much more easily. And our, and we would have more flexibility and the projects could be less expensive. Is that what you're saying? It is. It's, and I've seen and heard about projects where what's specified doesn't exist in the lumber world. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> I'm working with a, a builder and for the plate material, it's a five-story multifamily project. They're specifying um, MSR, machine stress rated Southern yellow pine, which, I mean, this is like the, the, bull, the strongest product out there for plate material. And it's, I'm sure if you could get it, it would work fantastic. Yeah. But the availability of the product is just not there. So I, and this goes back to knowledge of the material. Um, if you understood what is the most abundant product available, which of course is going to change, um, and then start specifying or shifting your design towards that, though, using those materials. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. And, and, and your platform materials exchange is built for that, right? It does lots of things, but it has that information, that real time data that we can be looking at and learning about lumber. Correct. And it's, it's simple. It really is simple. Architects are not nefarious. If, if you give them the data, right. they're a, a creative, smart group, they can design and build good looking buildings with that data. Yeah. If and you don't want give them, to. And we, you want we, to, right? Right. We want to create the best project we can for the least expensive, right? For the least amount of money. So um, it, it seems it's like ridiculous. Right. Why don't you get that data? We, it's not available. Like where, where exactly. do you get it? That's where most people would, would end it. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. And then that would be the end of the conversation. But it's 2022. Like the world we live in is a connected world. Um, and I, I communicate, you can communicate with someone across the entire globe with little delay. Why can't we just get this data moved around? Better? Explain to me what materials exchange does. What is it? It, uh, if you're familiar at all with how the equity market, the stock market works, it's, it looks just like that. You have a product. Let's go with, you know, two by four, 104 and five eighths inch long studs. Um, you have people that put bids on truckloads of that. And you have people that put offers on selling it. And then it becomes a quasi e-commerce platform or market or exchange. Yeah. So an exchange would be like uh, NASDAQ, New York stock exchange, right? Right. E-commerce would be Amazon, you know, Amazon, you, you can't put a bid in on Amazon. You go shopping, you see the price, you like it. Great. Maybe you buy it. If you don't like it, you're like, well, I buy it for 10% less. That doesn't have that functionality. New York Stock Exchange, you, know, you go, you see the price of Microsoft. Great. I, I think that's yeah. a, a fine price, but I want to buy it $25 less. Yeah. Great. Put your bid in. Something might happen. So that's what we've created is environment where the buyers and the sellers can put bids and offers in. And um, it's not a financial product. You will buy a truck of lumber. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a digital marketplace. It's as if the the trucks full of lumber showed up at a yard, and all the buyers showed up at that yard, and they had a, an auction for the trucks, 
right? Like, essentially, that's what we're talking about, but it's yeah. a digital platform that allows you to do that. So, so if you wanted to, so a contractor who has, or a home builder or whomever's buying lumber can put a bid on a truckload of what they need, yeah. right? And then whoever has the highest bid gets the truck. Absolutely. And it, it, it's as simple as, and I keep going back to this, just transparency of data. Like let everybody see what the price is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was at a conference, a guy from a regional lumber chain came up and said, well, are you going to let my customers see this data? I'm like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want that. Oh, yeah. You want to tell them what the price is. Of course. So then I can yeah. put my, well, my that's margin. the way it's always been. Right. Right. And it, it's kind of a joke because no one goes to just one information, right. even right. today, you know, <laughs> two days ago, my daughter had to buy shampoo and she said, we have to go to the grocery store to get this. And I'm like, why? She goes, cause that's where it's at. I'm like, have you looked at Amazon? And she's like, no. Well, it turns out she could have bought it for $2 a bottle cheaper on Amazon and have it delivered to the house. Yeah. Um, and that's the way markets should be. Uh, the the yeah. world will be a better place if there's transparency of data and allow people to make good decisions. Yeah. But you know, just the, the data isn't the only answer. You still have to have the mechanisms in place to do something with that data and make right. a change. Are there thing are there are there resources at materials exchange that architects can learn what they need to learn to to educate themselves more about uh, what we're talking about here? If architects want to do what you're saying, and I'm sure that most of us do, uh, because it benefits not only us but our clients, how do we do that? Does material materials exchange allow us to do that? Um, well, you know, of course, you can sign up, uh, get access to the platform. Um, but uh, as a starter, what we do is uh, we do three live stream shows yeah. uh, per week, Perfect. Tuesday, yep. Wednesday, Thursday at noon. In fact, uh, my colleague just got finished with his show. Uh, Tuesdays is about lumber futures. Wednesdays is just about the lumber market in general. And Thursdays is kind of an analysis, uh, slicing the market up a little bit. Um, and we're getting better and better at these live stream shows. They go for about 30 to 40 minutes, but it's, why would you not want to hear about what's going on in right. the lumber world? It's an easy way to learn not right. only about the, the markets, but I'm assuming because they're live streams, you're talking about real time prices oh, and yeah. real time effects on prices. So that question that I asked earlier about the pandemic and the pricing of lumber, if we were following you on your live streams during that period of time, I'm sure you were talking all about those those issues and we would have known long before the rest of the world knew. But I mean, the other thing that architects can do though is demand more from their supply chain or from their, maybe their customers or their colleagues. I had the experience in the middle of the pandemic, the price of MSR, machine stress rated lumber, it was really expensive. And I went, there was a company that was bringing in lumber, machine stress rated lumber from Europe, but the software that designs the trusses didn't have those design values in the software. Right. So I wanted to sell it to this particular trust builder. He's like, I, I, I can't use it. I'm like, what do you mean you can't use it? He goes, my software won't design it. Okay. No big deal. Let me just call the software company. And I talked to the software company. Oh, yeah, you know, just it'd be six months before we could even take a look at putting those values into the software. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get it. Look, I've been in software builds. I understand it takes a little bit of time, but 
it's just weird how some spots inside the whole ecosystem become the roadblock. Right. Right. Uh, there's what's going on right now. Doug fur two by 12 Doug fur is double the price of two by 12 hem fur. Now it's slightly different as far as, um, strength values, but it's, it shouldn't be that way. But in, this is particularly in the Northeast United States. Yeah. But out there, the builders don't know how to drive a nail through Hemfer. It's not in their skill set. Dougfer, they can drive a nail through. Hemfer, they can't. All right. You're willing to pay double. Yes, not a problem. Because once back in 1974, he probably bought some Hemfer and it something happened and he's never going to buy it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so, the way we've always done it. That's the way. And I, re- I respect that a lot because the builders are the experts, but yeah, what I am for sure, I, I do know is that the builders that are most open-minded and always looking to do things a little bit better end up being more successful. Yeah. It's like you on the trading floor with the tablet. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of the things that excite me right now are the offsite construction. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I think with our labor shortage that, uh, you know, we should definitely be moving forward at full speed on that. Um, I'd love to see architects somehow work that into their repertoire. Yeah. Well, many of us are for sure. And, and many of us more will for sure, because that's the technology and the, and the, the methods that are coming our way. It's, it's I, so I do have one. One other big gripe, by the way. Yeah. Go ahead. You have um, you have the platform, so let's have do the, it. <laughs> so the supply chain is typically a one-way street. It goes from, it, with regards to data, it goes from the source to the destination. Do you know why we build with two by fours in the United States? Because that's the always the way we've always done it. Well, that's what the sawmills make. <laughs> right. Exactly. You go to Europe, they. What do you what do you want to build with? There's this communication back to the song. Right. Yep. Oh, you want to build with something that is 18 millimeters by 30 millimeters. Oh, okay. That's what we'll cut. But the sawmills make two by fours. And how about this? You generally speaking, you buy wood in either eight foot, 10 foot, 12 foot, in two foot increments. <laughs> Today, talking to this builder, he has 11 foot walls. Thank you, architect. You, you know, you're gonna have right. this so wonderful room that's gonna have every 12 footer, right? Yeah, exactly. He has to buy 12 footers and cut them back. Right now, he's got that, that happens all the time, all the time. And now it sounds like I'm pointing the finger at the architect for building the 11 foot walls, but maybe that's the best use case, right? Right. Make an 11 footer. Right. Why can't we get an 11 footer? Right. Right. I, I mean, I can tell you why because the sawmill is not designed or set yeah, up because it's not made efficiently and, to cut 11 footers all right so it it's these kind of things that are just yeah it's insanity when you look at it do you think we'll ever get to the point and i don't where where we will design a building the building will then be you know the the material list which is already happening is 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 produced from our our bim file um and then then the lumber actually gets cut from that materials list rather than the other way around. I do. I actually do. And I'm excited you said BIM because BIM is hands down. What is the game changer? Yeah. Um, on so many fronts, uh, even post delivery of the product, what's behind this wall. 
like we're, we're thinking about doing a little remodel in our house and the builder asked, do you have any blueprints? Now we're the second owner. Like I have no idea. Um, so yeah, I think that the whole BIM idea is yeah. it's just fantastic. And it, it, why not bring as close to the use, the final destination, the manufacturing of that? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I'm going to pitch another podcast that I do. I'm, I'm a co-host on a podcast called Build Smart. And it's, uh, it's hosted by um, Patrick McLamey, former CEO of HOK Architects. Okay. Um, and he's the current chairman of the uh, of building, uh, building, building smart international, uh, international organization. Um, and, and this whole season is about BIM and about the evolution of BIM and, and why BIM is the future of, of building I think yep. that, that you, uh, you and, and listeners will find it very interesting to, to listen to season two. Season one is about the history of HOK, but season two is about the history of building smart international, but it talks all about BIM and IFC files, uh, which is their their protocol to allow interoperability among different software. Uh, and to, if I understand to... BIM correctly too, it makes changes a lot easier yeah. as well. Yeah, it makes everything easier, right? And, 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 and he talks specifically about what you just said, is that it talks about, you know, um, he calls it BIM, bam, boom, right? It's sort of, first it's building information modeling and then it becomes building assembly modeling, right? So you take that that material that model and you actually build the building from the model, and then boom is building building operations uh, optimization model. So it goes to the final building and they run the building using and being able to make changes in the future and be able to make it more efficient and run more efficiently, all from the same model from beginning to end. That's that's from his point of view is the future of you know technology and, and design. Yeah, the, I think. I'd like to challenge the architects out there. And I know they're already probably thinking about this. We've got a housing problem in the United States and probably worldwide that it's not affordable. And obviously land cost is a big part of any structure, but the structure itself, um, it's, it's time we start building some affordable houses. Um, and, you know, design is a big factor when it comes to that. And, you know, I, it's something that's in a, running in the back of my mind quite a bit. I think whoever solves that problem is going to be very successful when you can make a, a quickly high quality delivered product. Um, you're going to do just fine. Yeah, 100%. What, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a partner up <laughs> the design build idea? Yeah. So I, I most everyone here knows Katera, uh, I'm sure. sure. Yes. They weren't wrong. They just didn't execute properly. Right. But right. look, if it, if it made sense to um, build houses, build cars like they build houses, they would be doing that. But it doesn't. It makes more sense to build to right. have one entity pretty much in charge from beginning to end yeah. of a build. So it, it, I think if I was an architect, I would get partnered up with the engineering firm and a builder. And this may sound really scary, but take on some of the risk of the building. Yeah, exactly. And it, the disconnect also between the architect and the subcontractor, I think is way too wide. And I hear this from the subcontractors. Uh, yeah. A good friend of mine is a framing contractor. And he said, if I, as the framer, I put the building up, if I was at the table 
and the architect wanted to do this. And I said, well, how about, you know, maybe we, whatever, shift it this way, right. three, yep. whatever. It, it would make a difference. It, it's all about this integration. It's, and, you know, look, how hard it would it be in today's world? To, everyone's got huge screens. You put a Zoom call together, you pop up the BIM and you show the plan. And then my buddy, who's the framer goes, well, that's going to be a real pain in the ass to build, <laughs> which is something he would probably say. Yeah. Then before you know it, the architect is thinking like a framer. The framer might be thinking more like an architect and right. it works more smoothly. Yeah. I'm going to go back to build smart. You have to listen to build smart because everything that you just said from the from the design build to to using the model, all of it is what Patrick is 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 espousing. So, so uh, build smart podcast would be my recommendation for cool. you. Michael. Yeah. Well, um, look, it starts with what we're doing here. It starts yeah, with putting exactly. the words into space and letting them get uh, kind of chewed upon. I have learned a lot from you in this past hour, and I'm sure our, our listeners have as well. Uh, I appreciate you for sharing your story and, and educating us on material and material pricing. I think we've all, we're all thinking differently after this conversation. So I appreciate you for that. Well, um, if I could uh, have you just in your day to day, you know, moving forward here now, think about these round trees that grow <laughs> in all different places of the world that get sliced and diced into square items and just the sheer number of calculations and possibilities that are available. And then we go, here's what we're building and designing and specking today for something build in 24 months. It's uh, it's just not logical. Build in the flexibility. His name is Michael Wisniewski and the website is materialsexchange.com. It's no E in exchange. So it's materialsxchange.com. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. Um, we'll also have a link to the live streams so you can go check them out and educate yourself on lumber and say hi to Michael and say, Hey, you heard of, heard of him on the entree architect. Yeah. And, uh, anyone who wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm a chatty guy. I'll, I'll talk to anyone and, uh, I love to learn as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear more. Can they connect with you on the website or is there some other way that's best? You know to what? Uh, it's, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little, um, I, what do I say? Uh, cheeky on this, uh, if you can't find me in today's world, <laughs> just go to LinkedIn. You can connect with me on LinkedIn for sure. Yeah, sounds good. And, and we'll have a link to the LinkedIn as well on the show notes. Michael, thank you very much for, um, for, for what you're doing because you're Im impacting the entire industry uh, with materials exchange. Uh, you're, you're shifting not only the market, but the way we design. Um, and this conversation was super interesting and informative. So thank you for joining us here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Appreciate the opportunity. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, share a link with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Please share a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I'd appreciate it. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at Gable Media at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go check it out. We have, I think, 13 podcasts over there now. 
gablemedia.com. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ARCHICAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioning to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect to learn more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at ncarb.org. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.